This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in a glass of purple dry. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Before introducing my guest and plugging a bit about his bio, given how expansive the show is, I want to first thank my sponsors, Halton Honda, for endorsing the show, for believing in the content, my guests and everything we try to bring to the guests every week. I also wish to thank my friends and family over at C-Suite Radio Network, where people can find the podcast following the live show up on my host page, again, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Well, today I am joined by a gentleman, an amazing gentleman by the name of Dr. Steve Tobman. So who is Dr. Steve Tobman? Well, what I can tell you about Steve is that he has dedicated his life to showing people how to thrive through their challenges. He's written extensively on the application of contemplative practices in stressful situations and is spoken throughout the United States on mindset mastery for goal-oriented professionals. Having endured crippling anxiety and low self-esteem early in life, Dr. Tobman made it his mission to understand the nature of happiness and the remedy for emotional turmoil. His search led him to neurology, holistic health, mindfulness, positive psychology, and hypnosis. Each of these disciplines is represented in Dr. Tobin's system for living a balanced life, free of neurosis, and rich in accomplishment. Dr. Tobin continues to enrich his understanding of the science of happiness and its impact on success. Most recently, he has partnered with mental toughness expert Steve Siebold to deliver high-impact programs on the psychology of performance to business professionals worldwide. When not writing or speaking, Dr. Tolman enjoys spending time with his dog, Woody, in and around his home on the beautiful Burlington, Vermont waterfront. Welcome, my friend. How are you? Thank you for joining us here today. Thanks, Lisa. What a pleasure being with you. And uh, we have to make sure that we get to post a picture of Woody. Everybody's going to want to see Woody. Oh, lovely. Well, I would love to do that. <laughs> so what I what I like to do, and again, this is unscripted dialogue. I, I believe it makes for a much more organic, authentic discussion. The feedback has been you never quite know what's going to be birthed out of the conversation as a result of getting away from the structured Q&A, which I much prefer. Um, so what I'm always interested to know, Steve, is what is the backstory? We know that from what was cited there in the bio, uh, that there was some background uh, related to, you know, some depression and and self-confidence issues. So what what was that all derived out of? Well, what it was derived out of was a dysfunctional family uh, upbringing. And, uh, and, and so as I grew up, I, like many people, um, put a lot of my time and energy into, into my schooling and into uh, what I thought it meant to be successful. 
but I neglected, as many of us do, the uh, uh, the, pra- the practices or the habits of developing self-confidence and, you know, maybe thinking that if I achieved something, then I'd get self-confidence. Um, so it took me a long time to get on to the fact that achievement doesn't lead uh, ultimately to where you want to end up. And, and in fact, I, I was going to mention this kind of funny little thing. I was, I was uh, driving the other day and somebody pulled out in front of me, somebody with bumper stickers all over her car. And there were things like uh, well-behaved women never make history. <laughs> Very true. I love that one. And then the other one was I'd rather be here now. Yes. Um, and, and But the one that really caught my eye, it said um, you can get all A's and still fail at life. Very true. And that wow. was well, that was my story in a nutshell. You know, I got all A's. I was a very gifted student. And mm-hmm. I and took that through the entire educational process to the uh, logical end result, became a doctor, you know, chiropractic physician, sports medicine doctor, had a very successful practice. And uh, the the outer me was extremely competent. The outer me was uh, was admirable and people uh, really envied my life. But on the inside, I just felt miserable. You know, I felt mm-hmm. insecure. I felt uh, I felt that everything I was doing required more effort than it should require because I was slogging through my own emotional, uh, mor- you know, mud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it took me a long time to start changing my priorities and realizing that that life, uh, a life that's uh, admirable from the outside but miserable on the inside, is not a particularly a valuable life. And, and there are things you're not being able to give that otherwise you could give mm-hmm. um, because you're, because you're trapped inside of your own uh, misery. And so, so I changed my, my strategy in life and, and it, it happened step by step. You know, it started with my realizing that, uh, that what I had in my practice wasn't a good reflection of who I was, even though I was successful. Uh, I, I began to realize that to be true to myself, I needed to get clear about what would be uh, what would be a more uh, natural expression of who I am as a person. What, what what could I do? What would I do if I weren't doing what I was told I should do, or what my parents thought I should do? Or you know, what if I kind of freed myself from expectation and recreated my life? Beautiful. Well, you touched upon a few things that I want to segue back, or, or I want yeah. to circle back. So. Um, you know, it, it is P- optics wise, people look at the veneer of people's lives and, and they think they've got it all together, whether it be because of, you know, in your case, you've got uh, the initials following your name, you've got the title and the status associated with being a doctor and all the education that goes into that, which means, you know, people put you in this category of being an elitist or, you know, being a high achiever and maybe more so than the general average public. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so from that, uh, from that point of view, people would view you to be extremely successful very confident, uh, everything must be bickety-boo in your life. So for how many years did you carry on with your life having been running exactly like that before you just said, I can't, I can't do this anymore, something's got to definitely shift? What was the time frame before you made that conscious decision to shift into a, a life that was more purposeful and servant to you? Oh, I did it very fast. It took seven years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? Here's what happened. I, I was uh, I, I practiced for a total of 14 years, mm-hmm. and about seven years into my practice, um, one of the ways that I tried to address this uh, this gap was to take on a, a new challenge. And so um, I was I was always interested in um, 
in seminars, you know, uh, particularly professional development, personal development kinds of seminars. And I, I went to a lot of those at the time. There was a company called Career Track, and then mm-hmm. there were the prior seminars. And there were a few of these companies that would, would produce uh, pretty high-quality day-long workshops and trainings and things. And I went to a lot of those. And at one point, I was, I was in one of them with, uh, with a girlfriend of mine who was also in the social services and healthcare and whatnot. And I, I turned to her. I said, you know, we could do this. We have we have enough knowledge, we have enough uh, savvy to be able to stand up and, and teach something like this, and maybe that's what we want to do. So that was seven years into my practice. She and I created uh, a workshop, and mm-hmm. we taught that workshop for about a year. Uh, the workshop, it's still my favorite name of any workshop I've ever heard of. It was called How to Be Honest Without Alienating Everyone You Know. Wow. Isn't there some truth to that? <laughs> <laughs> So we did that for a while, and then uh, that that fell apart mostly because of the personal relationship that I had with her, and my my effort kind of went back to my practice for for uh, for t- some time, and then I started getting interested in magic mm-hmm. as a hobby, and uh, that happened immediately upon my uh, my breakup with my girlfriend, and uh, I usually uh, joke with people. I say, yeah, I got you know I just gotten out of a relationship, and I needed something to do with my hands. Oh God. <laughs> So, so I started doing magic, and I became uh, a fairly skilled, corp- uh, well, close-up magician, and I started getting invited to perform uh, for cocktail parties at corporate parties, um, uh, corporate events, and, um, and it started taking on a life of its own, where at the same time in my practice, I realized that I was feeling uh, just weighty, heavy, unhappy, uh, unfulfilled, uh, insecure, all the, all the stuff that was really the emotional baggage was mostly present in my practice. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, um, you know, I had a fairly high success rate treating people. I, you know, I want to say maybe 85 to 90% of my patients got results, mm-hmm. uh, often good results, but you know, that other 10 to 15% who didn't get results were proof to me that I was worthless. Wow. You looked upon it that way. Did you? Yeah, and I think a lot of us do. A lot of us, you know, a lot of people in theater and a lot of people who spend time in front of the public, uh, you know, if you're speaking in front of a group, uh, quite often uh, you'll, you'll, you know, have a lot of people come up and say what a great job you did. But if somebody like looks at you wrong, that's what you remember. Well, that's true. It's like, uh, you know, a lot of people will, will parallel that with, you know, when they're in a typical kind of nine to five job situation and, you know, they're scheduled to have a performance appraisal and there could be 99 things that the employee uh, is, um, you know, stated to do extremely well. Uh, There might be some goals or areas that need to be improved upon, but then there might be one area that's kind of defined as a level of weakness or, you know, you really got to pull up your bootstraps. And rather than focusing on the 99 things that are fantastic, Stellar people tend to get consumed uh, with the, the, the negative, and uh, so it's unfortunate because we, as we talk about, and for what you're endeavoring, committed to doing your passion and your purpose, you know, mindset is everything. So, what would be some of your advice for the listening audience, Steve, in terms of recalibrating your brain, uh, knowing that self dialogue is very 
very crucial, very pivotal to the results and the energy that we emit out to the universe. You know, what we put our attention on shows up and it grows exponentially. So what would you say to people in terms of mindset and and some of the things that you've done that you've incorporated into your daily routines and rituals and and, and now habit forming uh, that's taken you into an accelerated uh, direction in your life? Well, that was a brilliant segue. First, I want to say, and uh, and I and I did want to circle back, and you brought us right back to uh, that very point—the point that uh, that our self-talk determines our experience. And and you know, mm-hmm. I, certainly in those days in my life, uh, my self-talk was was pretty dismal, and so uh, so I was magnetizing, and I, I don't mean magnetizing like in a, a law of attraction way. I'm talking about just what where my attention was drawn. My attention was drawn to the negative. Mm-hmm. My attention was drawn to the discomfort, and uh, and it took me a long time to realize that I had any control over that whatsoever. That you know, and, and this is why my work uh, over the course of the last several years uh, has grown stronger, uh, and and why my writing and my my teachings I think differ from a lot of other people. Um, so, for example, a lot of people will say, "Well, you got to think positive." Mm-hmm. You got to um, force yourself to say positive things to yourself, or you've got to say affirmations, or you've got to just put on a happy face. And you know that's great if you're already a positive person. That's lovely advice, and people who are positive always agree with that advice, mm-hmm. right? The people who are kind of magnetized to the negative, whose attention is drawn to the pain, uh, what Eckhart Tolle calls the pain body, yes. the sort of the, the the deep pain within many of us that has a life of its own. Um, it's such a, uh, as I said, it has a life of its own. It's got such a powerful presence within us that, uh, that to, for somebody to come along and say, just be positive, you just want to whack them. You know, you just mm-hmm. want to smack them because it just doesn't work that way. And that's why I think people are drawn to my work because they hear me say what I just said and they're like, yes, mm-hmm. I get it. That's, that's the problem. The problem is that, you know, I like you, Steve, um, don't naturally gravitate toward this optimistic cheerful happy place so it's so it's a little bit takes a little bit more um wisdom i think to know what to do with my pain right what do i do when i'm negative so here's here's where this went for me and and we'll tease out some specific messages from it but where it went for me was that the very first thing i needed to do was to recognize um that i had to honor my path Mm -hmm. and that meant I wasn't meant to be a chiropractor anymore. Mm-hmm. I, al- although I was, you know, skilled and I was uh, successful in the outward sense, um, there was something else churning within me that I began to realize as a magician that I needed personally, and and that was uh, sort of a public persona, uh, being on stage. You know, that was part of me. I was always, uh, you know, a, a ham, <laughs> a performer. But- a performer. So being a performer meant I had to perform and being in an office all day long meant I wasn't performing. And so just knowing that, I think, was was the very first step. And the second step was the courage uh, to to jump ship, to, to realize that, you know, many of us make decisions early in our lives about about our path. Mm-hmm. And those decisions were made at such an early point that that we never questioned them. Right. And when, even when we're unhappy, we still don't question them because we figure we just don't have an option. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's just not true. So, so what I realized was that I did have an option. I did have the choice and I had to 
um, of course, generate enough courage to be willing to leave the known for the unknown. Yes. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Exactly. And what I got from that was was a, a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Because I recognized, and the moment that I knew it was time to leave my practice was a very sudden moment. I think for most of us, the time comes when something goes from being important to becoming urgent. Yes. You know, like I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about losing weight. I've been thinking about changing my job. I've been thinking about eating better. I've been thinking about writing a book. I've been thinking, thinking, thinking. And then one day you wake up and you're like, no, I've got to stop thinking and start doing. Absolutely. And isn't that a powerful moment? For me, it was so powerful. And so sudden, I was actually, uh, and I remember this vividly, I was at, of all things, a chiropractic seminar, <laughs> and, there, and there, was, there was a motivational speaker on stage really pumping everybody up about the power of chiropractic and how we all deserve to feel great about ourselves for what we do, and, and everybody in the room was just as excited as can be, and in the middle of all of that, I, I had a magazine with me. It was a, it was a chiropractic journal, and, and I, I turned to the back of the magazine. Because I, I didn't feel this enthusiasm that everybody in the room was feeling. I wanted to. I expected to, but I didn't feel it. So I, I, I turned to the back of the book, and I found a company that appraises chiropractic practices mm-hmm. and helps sell them. And I got up out of the room. This was now before cell phones, right, 96, or very few cell phones. I went into the payphone in the hotel, and I called the company, and I said, I want you to appraise my practice. I'm selling my practice. Wow. Yeah, it was it was that sudden and that obvious and it was that urgent. So so I knew in that moment and less than a year later, I was out of chiropractic practice. I was uh, traveling the world. I was um, I was meeting some remarkable people. I was having experiences, uh, some of which show up in my first book on hypnosis, some really magical, magical moments that affirmed for me what um, what I now think of as uh, reality. Back then, I didn't even know it existed, and that is this this experience that we have when we're on our proper path. Yes. Like, well, like I, things happen. I, we are, we're we're a, our, our our decision becomes affirmed in some way. Absolutely. Well, there's a couple things I want to say. One, it's a statement. The other one is a question. But first, I want to start by saying congratulations, kudos to you, because don't we know how unfortunate it is how many people actually, you know, do the daily grind, they begrudge every aspect of what it is that they do in terms of the work front. And we know for how many hours and how many years gets dedicated to that. So, you know, and what do we do? It's repetition, repetition. So if you're in that state, if you're energetically in that sphere of continually doing something that you cannot stand, that, you know, ends up insulting your soul, ends up just being a waste of time, well, I'll down into affecting every other aspect of your life, call it relationships, call it not being able to find joy in anything else, whether it be nature, whether it be, uh, you know, socializing, anything, uh, participating in hobbies, uh, you just kind of lose that zest for life. So for the amount of people who unfortunately still remain in that sphere of energy, I just want to say kudos to you because a lot of people would look at what you had previously accomplished in your life, uh, you know, developing a practice, going to medical school, doing all of those 
those things. A lot of people, if in similar situations, and I think a lot of people in similar situations today who can relate perhaps to what you're saying, Steve, you know, would go, okay, well, that sounds like really airy-fairy. It sounds really easier said than done because now I've got a mortgage. Maybe I've got a cottage. Maybe I've got a couple cars. You know, I've got kids. I've got all these kinds of bills and commitments. And yeah, wouldn't it be nice to just walk away from something that no longer serves me? But then, you know, what am I going to do in place of that that's going to, you know, garner me an income? Because who wants to be stressed about starting all over again and not knowing exactly the direction that that's going to go in uh, that doesn't create all kinds of other uh, unforeseen type issues? So for people who are interfacing with you, the people that you speak with uh, who come to watch you and, and learn from you and coaching clients, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, when they say, you know, Steve, I want to get to that level of clarity that you seem to have found for yourself. You know, I know that I'm not honoring myself. I know there's more to life. I'm not really particularly feeling jazzed about anything. I don't look forward to waking up in the morning. I'm not really looking forward to my day. And I'm tired of every day being uh, similar to the day before, year in and year out. You know, how do you get people clear? Because, of course, we know clarity is key for change and for shift. Okay, well, that's a that's a great question, um, and and you you started out by using a term you said insulting your soul, and I'd never heard anybody say that before, and I love that way of looking at it. It's like when something you're doing is insulting your soul, uh, you're, that's a crisis, that's a heart attack or or you know cancer waiting to happen. So when we're at that point. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, that's like we say, you know, you could get, you could get it with a feather, you can get it with a Mack truck, but it's better with a feather. Yes. Right. So, so now let's talk about people who are, uh, who are trapped within their own circumstances, as you just described the person who's got the mortgage and the kids and the, and a very, um, you know, kind of demand oriented life that doesn't afford them the kind of luxury um, to pick up and leave the way I did. And I certainly don't begrudge anybody um, that. And I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody can do exactly what I did. Although I will say what I did was not easy and it was scary as, as all hell. Um, and that and that there were uh, challenges along the way. Um, and, and I just want to say that at some level, we're probably all a little bit freer than we think we are. Mm-hmm. We name we name we may not be as free as we'd like to be. We may not be able to literally pick up and leave, um, but we're often uh, reinforcing our own victimhood. We're reinforcing our own sense of choicelessness. Yes. When in fact we may have some choices. So for that person who's stuck inside of that extremely um, claustrophobic life, mm-hmm. they may not be able to pick up and like just blow the doors off of that life. But they might be able to make smaller changes. Um, there's a great story uh, that's told. Nasruddin was a sort of folk hero in the Sufi tradition. And Nasruddin, uh, he's one of these sort of funny folk characters. They tell a story of Nasruddin living in a small cottage with, uh, with his wife and his 10 kids and the in-laws and the grandparents and the um, couple of the neighbors and the servants and the goat. Hmm. And the place is so tight that nobody can breathe. Mm-hmm. And one night while they're all asleep, the door blows open and the goat gets out. And Nasruddin wakes up in the morning. And he says, wow, there's so much room in here. <laughs> so so it's like lose the goat. What's your goat? What's, yeah. the, what's the thing that you can lose? What's the thing you can let go of 
that will begin to give you some breathing rooms that will begin to end your claustrophobia. So for some of us, the GOAT is internal. You know, you yeah. might keep doing the exact same job you're doing right now if, you know, if, if circumstances don't permit you to change. But that doesn't mean you can't wake up tomorrow morning and and work on having a more optimistic attitude, work on reframing the experience. So you're used playing it as a game, um, work on finding other uh, creative solutions for how you do it. You know, Tim Ferriss wrote that wonderful book called The Four Hour Work Week. Yes. And that, you know, showing people how they can start doing some work from home instead of at the workplace. Um, so what are some of those creative solutions that will give you more time, uh, more breathing room, more uh, more of a little attitude shift? And those are the things you want to start concentrating on, you know, looking for ways to um, uh, to recognize your how, how you're doing damage to yourself and to stop doing damage to yourself. There's another great um, uh, metaphor that I wanted to share. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's called the second arrow. And this is a Buddhist principle. It's a Buddhist yeah. story. Right. And the idea is that, um, you know, if you, if somebody shoots you with an arrow, that hurts. Mm -hmm. But if you take the arrow out and then you stab yourself with it, that's the second arrow. That's that's unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, in our lives, we're constantly shooting ourselves with a second arrow. And I'll give you an example. Have you ever felt, uh, well, have you ever noticed yourself being angry? Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you ever noticed that if you've had a pattern of being angry about a particular thing, that the way you react to your anger is to be angry at yourself for being angry? Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I'm angry about this. <laughs> What's the matter with me? Right? right. That's the second arrow. That is, you know, you're angry about being angry. Or maybe you're like I was for many years, anxiety ridden, just nervous mm -hmm. and, and insecure and uncomfortable in your own skin. Um, and the second arrow is, uh-oh, I'm getting anxious. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm getting anxious. Mm -hmm. That's being anxious about being anxious. So there's no breathing room in in the second arrow. There's no breathing room when you're when – you're, um, way of being is that you use the same emotion against the emotion itself. Right. Well, okay. I, I, I'll say something to that because yes, on, on many levels, I agree with you. That's very counterintuitive. Um, however, if people are consciously aware though, and because sometimes people just go through their emotions, they don't analyze it. They don't dissect it. They don't realize that it's an internal job. You know, usually it's indicative of something deeper. You need to go deeper. You need to figure out what this anger derives from. Uh, so that's where the level of, of work, you know, you got to work on yourself before you can look out into the world and say, you know, the politics needs to change or the community needs to change or the culture of leadership needs to change or whatever, need, you know. No, we need to do the work on ourselves. And if everybody's committed to doing so, that's when we start to see the revolution of, of bigger change, uh, fundamental change. Um, but I think if somebody is cognizant, when we talk about your example of the second arrow, if somebody's cognizant, like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm anxious about being anxious and, and, you know, that's fine as long as you use that as a barometer for acknowledgement. And I think once you start to acknowledge and tap into, okay, this feeling that I'm feeling, good that I can identify it for what it is, good that I can label it, uh, not comfortable staying stuck here because it's not ser serving me. It's certainly counterintuitive. But knowing that this is how I'm feeling and I find myself feeling this uh, quite often, what am I going to do with that? 
And that's where the shift needs to happen. So I think as long as you're looking upon it as a way to shift change, as opposed to once again, become self-deprecating and, you know, uh, beating yourself up and bullying yourself, uh, then I think it's fine. I think it's fine because it's mirroring, right? It's mirroring and you can't mirror things back if you're not even aware of what's going on or what to even call things. Well, let me let me uh, put a different spin on it. I, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. And it was good that you brought that up because um, there's there's absolutely got to be uh, uh, the look within. The answer mm-hmm. is not outside of yourself. And so I think what happens is there are there are levels of consciousness mm-hmm. and at very at a very low level of consciousness. Uh, things suck and it's not my fault. Mm hmm. Right. That's the lowest level of consciousness. It's something out there is making my life miserable. Right. And if it's your thinking process, then you're then you're very much powerless. You're a victim of your experience. And and it's a very troubling place to be. And it's going to cause you a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Right. At, at, a, at a slightly higher level of consciousness, which is where a lot of uh, personal j- development junkies live, people like you and me. Right. right. <laughs> a lot of us. A lot of us live at the next level of consciousness, which is it's nobody else's fault, but it's my fault and I suck. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so it's, it, perhaps it's a higher level of consciousness than blaming something outside of yourself, but it's still not a high enough level of consciousness because it has no power. Mm-hmm. So the next level of consciousness up is a level of consciousness where it's, okay, it's not my fault. It is my responsibility Mm-hmm. That I'm feeling this way. It's nobody else's fault. Uh, somehow I'm making myself feel this anxiety. And at that level of consciousness, we do a lot of head work, a lot of like, as you said, working on ourselves. I'm going to try to figure out why this is happening. I'm going to think back to my childhood. I'm going to I'm going to try to work it out. I'm going to think my way through it. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a higher level of consciousness, but it's still not the highest mm-hmm. because because we can get tripped up there for a very good reason. And the reason is because we're using our, our we're using our mind to try to fix our mind. Okay, we're trying to use our thoughts to fix our thoughts. Right. And and so what happens there? And this is you're still somewhat in the angry at my anger, but maybe less so. Maybe you're just like I'm really you know I'm I'm really trying to figure out what to do with my anger, but I'm really serious about it. Right. I'm really sincere, and I'm really working on this because if I could finally figure out who made me angry about these things when I was a kid, then it'll solve the problem. In other words, if I could figure it out, I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what most personal development work is based on is if I could figure it out, I'll be okay. Now, years ago, I heard, um, I'm sorry, uh, Werner Earhart say, understanding is the booby prize. <laughs> Which basically means, you know, you could get, you could be a great uh, student of therapy, you know, you could, like I did, I spent a lot of years in, in therapy mm-hmm. and I could explain in great detail what my mother did to me and what my father did to me and how my family dynamics caused me to, um, you know, to, to glitch out and why things bother me, et cetera, et cetera. But they still bothered me. Right. Right. Because I was still stuck in trying to figure it out or, or assuming that figuring it out was going to solve the problem. Well, there's again, a level higher than that. And that is uh, what what the Buddhists call mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, what Eckhart Tolle calls presence. Uh, mm-hmm. What uh, what some might call essence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but what that means, and it's a subtle distinction, but it's a huge one when it comes down to 
how you live your life. And that is at some point, you know, if you're, you know, as, as somebody listening to this, as somebody trapped within your circumstances or trapped within your emotions or trapped within your, uh, your habits and patterns, whatever that trap feels like for you, um, trying to figure it out is way better than blaming somebody for the fact that you're feeling it. Yes. And, but better still is mindfulness. And what mindfulness does is it says, yes, awareness. I need to be aware of it. I need to have self-awareness about how my patterns work. Mm-hmm. But I also need to have acceptance or what, what the Buddhists call equanimity. Mm-hmm. In other words, I've got to be able to look at this feeling that's arising inside of me when my girlfriend, you know, blames me for, uh, you know, for showing up late when she's the one who said show up at that time. Right. And I know I'm right. You know? Yeah. And, and if I were really unconscious, I would, you know, spend my whole time trying to prove her wrong. Um, and if I'm a little bit more conscious, then I'll try to figure out why I, it's so important to me to be right. But if I'm really, really conscious, what I'll do is I'll drop the whole damn thing. Yes. If I'm really conscious, what I'll do is I will turn my attention away from the story. Mm-hmm. And I'll turn my attention to the inner experience. I, I'll say to myself, what does is, what is anger feel like inside of this body that I'm in right now? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what's, what's going on inside of me right now? And, and I'll resist the urge to jump back into the story. Well, it's an interesting point because I think oftentimes people forget, particularly when you get to be this age of being an adult where you've got more choice and not knowing necessarily what people's circumstances were in childhood, you know, who their role models were, lack of role models. Uh, you know, I understand a lot of people, similar to myself, I've been very transparent and open about a lot of, you know, I, I turn shit into gold. That's what I do. You know, and I think I think the people when you hear about, you know, the Tony Robbins story and anybody who has uh, really gotten clear about, okay, yeah, those unfortunate things happen to me. But there's a blessing in there. There's a lesson in a lesson in there. And we all know that there's always somebody perceivably who has it worse than us, which is why if you turn to service, if you turn to paying it forward, if you turn to volunteerism, if you turn to, you know, in your modality of, of being a chiropractor, me having been previously in social services, you know, interfacing with people who fall within the degree of uh, the umbrella of isms, you know, it's very hard to be a victim, to play victimology when you know that, you know what, I've been through quite a bit here. And, you know, I'm the author of my own story here. And I can rewrite anytime I choose to, I can change up the characters, I can change up the plot, I can change up the ending, I can change it all up. And, you know, rather than being another person on the planet who falls prey to poor me syndrome and, you know, poor puppy syndrome and licking your own wounds, well, you know what? There's a whole vast majority of people that need some tools, are, are, are hungry for people like you, Steve, myself, the, these types of programs that we do here on the radio network, you know, for self-empowerment, for, for advocacy, for, you know, how do I become more self-aware? How do I become more uh, personally accountable? How can I see outside of myself in terms of, okay, yeah, I, I, I've got some experience here. Not all of it was positive, but it makes me perhaps more compassionate, makes me more empathetic, makes me more tolerant, makes me more nurturing, uh, makes me more loving. Um, so let's go do something. Let's go do something outside of ourselves to prop up humanity because, you know, God knows we're all starving for that. Beautiful. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's all really well said. I think uh, that no matter where you are, you can you can see it through a different lens and through the lens of you know every every problem you had every historical um 
you know, uh, abuse you've ever suffered has made you who you are today. And, and that along with your, uh, with how you frame it can make you into a much more compassionate person. It can make you into a much happier person. Um, so, so none of that stuff has to be where you spend your time. You don't have to spend your time churning and ruminating and, and regretting anything in your life. You can really right now, um, choose to take certain action steps uh, that change your attitude. You could be more uh, express gratitude more more freely. Yeah, you could, uh, be more giving. You know, find ways of of giving back. Uh, all of those things: gratitude, giving, um, humor, looking for humor in situations that you never looked for humor in before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all these tools at our disposal. Of course, that's the the nature of my work and yours. Uh, and the topic of my new book is really wrapped around this idea that what do you do when you're on the battlefields of your life? You know, what do you do when, you know, when all around you there's chaos and there's, and there's overwhelm and there's, uh, you know, there are things that are just pressing down on you, the, you know, the, the pressure of the world. Um, when you feel like the bullets are flying, what do you do to be bulletproof? What do you do to be pressure proof? Uh, and, and that's where, you know, we provide tools and as do you tools uh, to help people change their thinking so that those moments are opportunities to thrive rather than proof that you're falling apart. Absolutely. Beautiful. So let's talk about your book. You know, what is the title again? Where can people find it? What's the premise of the book? Uh, is that part and parcel of what you're using to spearhead speaking engagements, mentoring clients? Um, and how can people connect with you, Steve? Well, my my newest book, which launches in just a few days, uh, is mm-hmm. called Buddha in the Trenches. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> and, and the subtitle is uh, Timeless System for Developing Unshakable Performance Under Pressure. Fantastic. So, so the book is written, you know, for people who are in high pressure lives. You know, this could be I wrote the book with executives in mind. Uh, but also I, I talk to a lot of uh, healthcare professionals, nurses and emergency workers, uh, even police and fire uh, professionals who are um, who, who have to bring their best to a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to survive a difficult situation like nurses have got to try to be compassionate and loving when their resources are drying up. When they're, you know, they've got to work longer hours and make less money, and and yet they they want to be compassionate, they want to love on their patients, but sometimes they're short tempered, they 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 don't have, um, they're exhausted, they just don't have the resources to give what they would like to give. What I asked myself was, what if I could, you know, bring tools to people who have that kind of life that'll mm-hmm. help them dissipate stress, that'll help them uh, overcome exhaustion. They'll help them gain their sense of humor. They'll help them create structure in their lives so that they're not, you know, having to do the same thing three times. Because, you know, I mean, I know for myself when I don't have a structure, I'm dealing with it right now on one of my projects, it's not well organized or structured. And so I'm doing twice as much work, you Mm -hmm. know, so I help people with that, with procrastination, with all these different elements that help us to ease our burden. And so I wrote the book for those people who are just trying to survive, as well as those like sales professionals who who have a goal mm-hmm. and, and they want to perform at the highest possible level and they don't want stress to be a deterrent. They want stress to, to push them forward. Right. So, so that's the idea. So the book, again, Timeless System for Developing Unshakable Performance Under Pressure, Buddha in the Trenches. And so the, 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 the metaphor of Buddha in the Trenches is the Buddha represents serenity and mastery. 
mm-hmm. right? Being calm and and masterful and in the trenches, meaning on the battlefields of life. Yes. So how can you be a Buddha in the trenches? How can you be somebody who's serene and masterful while the war is raging all around you? How can you be the calm in the eye of the storm? Beautiful. Well, I think some of the people that you said that you were kind of targeting and referencing, you know, like the first responders, EMS, nurses and whatnot, you know, I think a lot of it, too, it's it's who takes care of the caregiver. I mean, there's a lot of vicarious trauma. And if there's no outlet in which to for other people externally to come in and help those first responders deal with the crises that they're faced with uh, from the time they get the phone call, from the time that they arrive uh, at the scene of an emergency, you know, fatalities happening on their watch, all kinds of things like that. You know, knowing that that's the high pressure cooker job and, you know, you're talking about the fragility of life, you know, one minute somebody could be alive, the next minute there's there's no pulse and uh you know so there's a lot of vicarious trauma there's a lot of direct trauma and i think sometimes it's 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 the resources needing to be put in place for these people who are seen as you know teflon you know people who who sign up to be in those types of crisis related uh job vocation situations you know people forget you know people walk away with that that's why we we know things exist like post traumatic stress disorder that's why we know that you know people who have been on the battlefield like the veterans and then they come back and all of a sudden their minds are gone and their spirits are gone i mean so yeah i i think it's very important that you uh talk about that demographic and and use that as example of people being in the trenches because very very true very true yeah yeah um and and a lot of this you know we can heal a lot of our old wounds and we can support ourselves and care for ourselves through a lot of difficulties if we understand how so in in the book it's a five uh, pillars of peak performance under pressure and one of those pillars has to do with what i call assembling your lifeboats Mm. which means you know we all need a lifeboat we all need something or someone to cling to when we're drowning in our own stress. Mm-hmm. And so that's a part of the conversation of this book is how do you set your life up in such a way that that it becomes the natural thing for you to do to seek support and to know what kind of support and where to get it and when to get it so you're not going it alone. And that's a, a very important piece. We're, we're not, you know, we're all human beings and we're, we're all on the planet together. We've got to support Beautiful. each other. Yeah. And, where, and where will be, people be able to find your book once it's officially released in a few days? Well, once it releases in a few days, we have a website up. The website is buddhainthetrenches.com. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and what, I, what I would recommend is, you know, the, the website itself is, is being built and should be up in just a couple of days. If for any reason you go to buddhainthetrenches.com and you find that it's not um, active, what you ought to do is just go to unshakablenation.com. Mm-hmm. unshakablenation.com and what that does is it just redirects you into my new Facebook group our new Facebook community um, where you'll be able to be informed when the website is up and when our specials are being uh, offered and incidentally the first week that the book goes live uh, we're going to be giving it away um, the hardcover first edition we're going to be giving away several uh, probably about a thousand of them so uh, so if you want to get on that uh, make sure you get over to that page to Buddha in the trenches dot com and um you know get it while it's get them while they're hot. <laughs> Fantastic. Well congratulations and and so tell us a little bit about the inception of the book. How long because we, we we you know people for us who have written books, uh, you know, it's uh it's a very 
it's a very emotional experience, particularly depending on what it is that you're talking about. And a lot of the things that you could be saying in a way that is a tool to offer somebody or it's a, you know, um, practices that people could implement, you know, we can only get to that point where we can come up with those suggestions knowing we've incorporated them into our own DNA and executed them in our own day-to-day routines and stuff. But we open ourselves up for being potentially triggered too. So writing a book, it's more than just the self-discipline and the edit process and, and really going after, you know, over the the chapter content and making sure it all fits the way it should for the reader once it's produced. Um, but there's a, it, it does open the floodgates. So, you know, was that an emotional experience for you, Steve? You ask good questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. I, I want to say that, um, you know, at one point I was asked to come and give a talk to a group of authors and the talk was called how to survive writing a book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's a, it's very true. You know, my personal uh, process for writing a book uh, is different from a lot of people. I write very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, both of my, uh, you know, my previous books, you know, which which did very well, um, were written like in a week. Wow. Uh, and, and so was this one. But but the process leading up to it probably was, you know, a year or more. Right. Or maybe 20 years. I don't know. But but here's my process and, you know, take it or leave it. This is what's worked for me is that I think we don't we're not stopped by our emotions. We're stopped by our resistance to our emotions. Mm. Okay, if you could flow with your emotions, if you could allow them to be a tool to draw you on and you because like right now we're having a conversation. We didn't script a single word of this conversation, did we? Not one. Not a single word. So we're just talking and, and, and it's, I think, a pretty interesting conversation. So how did we do that? We did it because we're just speaking from the heart. And if an emotion arises, we're speaking through that emotion, right? We're just, we're just expressing whatever's in the moment. And that's the way I look at writing. So when I write a book, uh, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll write out a structure. I'll get a sense of what I want to say. I'll do a bit of uh, of legwork to uh, to maybe put a few thoughts down on paper that I want to make sure get addressed. Uh, I'll do a little you know mind mapping so I know which what's going to go into which chapters, and then when it's time to like get started, I kind of just do stream of thought writing. Mm-hmm. I just let all of that stuff exist in the background, and and the one thing I want to guard against, the one thing I want to prevent myself from doing while I'm writing is thinking or, yeah. or assessing or judging. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's what's called philosophical assessment rather than psychological assessment. I'm just, I'm just saying next, 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 what's coming next. You know, I'm just writing it. And so the best advice I ever got, uh, was, was actually from an old girlfriend uh, who said, if you ever write a book, she said, never read what you're writing while you're writing it. That's interesting. And, I, and I've heard people say that even when, because I do live stream videos. I haven't done like a recent one, but I used to do them all the time. And it was like, you know, just upload it. Don't bother watching it before you upload it because half people, you know, get caught up in critiquing yourself and, and yeah. then you're getting away from the actual content of the message, which you know is going to resonate with people, even if not at least one person. So yeah, don't pay attention. Just upload it, write it, upload it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and, and that's not to say that I'm not strongly tempted to do it the other way. 
There's there's yeah. always the temptation to go back and read it and craft it and tweak it. And, and I've done that. I've succumbed to the temptation from time to time. And I'm almost always sorry I did because it breaks my my flow. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you just go ahead and do it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, go ahead and release a book that hasn't been edited or, or, or uh, thought out. I'm saying do it in order. You know, mm-hmm. let this creative juices flow. Uh, go with it. Let it let it play out. And then when the time comes and when you've got all those ideas expressed, go back and then, you know, then look it over. And if you need to move a few things around or you need to give it to an editor, um, do whatever is necessary to make the book come out good. I mean, I've spent my book. I wrote my book in a week. The editing process, the reworking, the recreating, the finding a title or or the, you know, creating the copy for the cover. All that took months. Mm -hmm. Right. So the writing part was the shortest part. Love it. Because clearly you were in the flow. Yeah. Yeah. As you should be. I mean, that's the whole purpose, right? Speak from the well, heart. That's, what people are, that's why people pay you the big bucks, right? People don't want you to rehash somebody else's, uh, you know, thing or just raw knowledge. People want your point of view. People mm-hmm. want to know, what, how does he see this? You know, maybe it's a way I haven't thought of it before. You know, I mean, I'm writing on a topic that a lot of people have written on before. I'm writing about psychology, spirituality, uh, personal development. These are not new topics, and there's not that much new under the sun. But what did Steve Taubman do in his life that got him where he got, and how does he look at it, and what's his experience of, of how other people look at it? You know, like, what do I know about how successful people succeed versus unsuccessful people? And that's all through the lens of how I see it. That's, that's my point of view. That's what people want is your point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just being cognizant of time here, Steve, because these interviews always go far too quickly for my liking. But, uh, you know, just very quickly, you know, who have been some of your tangible, intangible mentors? Who's really played a a part, a pivotal part in navigating your journey? Earlier in life, when I started exploring uh, ideas about uh, about the mind and and the spirit, uh, some of the earlier influences were um, – Herman Herman Hess, yes, wrote Siddhartha and uh, um, uh, Steppenwolf. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of those books really made an impact on me back in those days. And then, and also back then, uh, Carlos Castaneda, who wrote all the the teachings of Don Juan and all those mm-hmm. spiritual uh, kind of southwestern Yaki knowledge books. Mm-hmm. Um, they really kind of started opening my mind years ago, uh, and that was my early reading. And then in more in my more recent past. Um, I was introduced to Ram Das. Oh, who, okay, yeah, a, a wonderful spiritual teacher. Yeah. Uh, he was Richard Alpert, the uh, you know a psychologist, psychology psychology professor who went to India mm-hmm. and studied with Neem Karoli Baba. Came back with the name Ram Das and started teaching back in the '60s. And he wrote "Be Here Now." Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I got to, and he was the first person who made me realize that. Uh, being, uh, you know, being somebody who's studying spirituality, being somebody who's studying and meditating and doing that kind of work doesn't mean being this sort of serious guru up on the top of a mountain because Ram Das is a very funny guy with like a, you know, a very engaging sense of humor. And I realized that, you know, people who are evolved spiritually are often very funny because right. they think seriously. So I started getting on to that fact. And I started enjoying uh, reading uh, people who had that same kind of a, a vibe. Um, there was a guy by the name of Bo Lazoff mm-hmm. who wrote a book uh, called We're All Doing Time. <laughs> which, is a, 
what's funny about that, he and Ram Dass started the prison ashram program. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing was they realized uh, through humor, they were like, you know, we went to India and we sat in a little cell by ourselves for days on end in order to get enlightened. Right. And people in America are sitting in little cells by themselves to get punished. Mm-hmm. But they're doing the same thing. It's just how are they doing it? Exactly. Again, going back to people with lives that they can't leave, it's like, how are you doing your life? Are you doing it like it's a chore? Are you doing it like you're in prison? Or are you doing it like this is a great opportunity to be enlightened? Is your, work, is your work your ashram? Is your work your, your sadhana, your spiritual teaching? And so that was one of the great things for me. And then uh, more recently still, probably one of the greatest influences was Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now. Yeah. Yep. Good book. Good author, good person, good human being, good example, good leader. So knowing that we have to wrap up here shortly, Steve, you know, in terms of my brand, Living Fearlessly, and clearly you've chosen to do that too. And again, I like how you and I both are very much synergistically on par with choice uh, because it is a choice, you know, regardless of all the unforeseen things that we get thrown in life. It's still how we choose to approach things, our attitude towards embracing and relinquishing. That's completely up to us and going forward. So what does living fearlessly mean to you? And if if you could impart a nugget or a tool or something for the listening audience who might be listening and tuned in because they're feeling stuck, you know, this is all resonating with them. They're, they're eating it up, they're sponging it up, but they're still looking for perhaps that one person to say something in such a way that's just going to be that kind of cathartic light bulb aha moment. What would you say about living fearlessly and how can people do that? Okay. So, so I'm going to say something, then I'll explain it. So it may not make any sense when I first say it. Okay. Okay. Get out of your head and into your body. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, now what does that mean? That means that when you experience fear or any emotion, certainly any strong emotion and any negative emotion, every emotion uh, is really composed of a thought and a feel and a sensation in your body. Mm-hmm. When you feel fear, uh, there's a feeling if you were to stop and think about or you're stopped to observe what it feels like inside of you, there's that sensation what fear feels like inside of you and then there's also thoughts in your head like oh my god i can't do this what's going to happen if this happens and all the all the thoughts that go on that create that sustain the fear Mm -hmm. the things that you're saying to yourself that you can or can't do because of this feeling inside of you all right so there's that's like what Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body it's the thought feeds the feeling and the feeling feeds the thought and it's a loop and you can't break it Mm -hmm. so what if just as an experiment for today What if the next time you felt fear, just for a moment, you were to stop focusing on the thoughts that were associated with the fear, and you were to simply sit there in quiet and observe what fear feels like in your body? Mm. Get out of your head and into your body. What does fear feel like inside of my body? Well, it's very unpleasant. Yes, it is. Okay, but go deeper. Where where do you feel it? Oh, it's in my stomach. Okay, and is it hard? Is it soft? What? Just kind of make your way through your feeling of fear and if you can be if you can embrace it if you can observe it if you can kind of roll around in it in a not like not when i say roll around in it i don't mean like oh poor me i'm saying just be the observer of what mm-hmm. fear feels like inside of you what'll start to happen is that it'll stop being something that stops you mm-hmm. it'll just be something that you notice something that you feel and that will eventually dissolve under the light of your own awareness and so if you could try that as an exercise for the next few days, 
when it, whenever you feel any fear or anger or anxiety, just take a moment without the thoughts and just be with the feelings. See what happens. See if it doesn't give you a higher level of presence, a lower level of fear, um, a willingness to go back to the thoughts and use and, and be more empowered about what you do. And you'll live fearlessly if yeah. fear isn't something that stops you. Fantastic. Well put. Love it. Thank you for that. What a lovely way to uh, end off here. A nice lesson, something to do tangibly because oftentimes people say, okay, I just don't know how to start. Feed it to me, you know, prop me, give me something and I'll run with it. So that was a very lovely gift that you imparted to myself and the listening audience. And I just want to say for the gift of your time, Steve, uh, couldn't be more grateful to you. I really love how you've stepped into your greatness. I really love how you've relinquished the things that didn't serve you, that held you back, uh, that made you feel incomplete, unfulfilled, not joy-filled. So, you know, perfect example, and this is why I love seeking out guests such as yourself who have really, truly uh, walked the talk but have done so knowing that they first had to do the work. And that never ends. I mean, investing time in yourself to really get exceptionally clear and to keep yourself on the path that you say that you have chosen for yourself, knowing that that's you operating at your highest vibrational level. I mean, by giving yourself that gift, that puts you energetically in a position to really truly be of service to the rest of the planet. So I just want to say thank you for all the the yummy things that you're doing. I think you're a lovely human being. Would love to have you back here down the road because uh, I'm sure for somebody who's as clear as what you are, for somebody who's impassioned by life, I'm sure there's all kinds of yummy things that are on the horizon for you that uh, we could bring you back and you can provide us with an update. So that that's an on-standing or ongoing uh, offer for you, Steve. And I want to just say to the listening audience, thank you very much for once again, your loyal listenership. Uh, we're now sitting between 420, 440,000 living fearlessly podcast subscribers. I attribute much of that to uh, you, the listener, obviously, to my guests, the quality content, uh, the people who are immersed in the world of personal development, self-awareness, leadership, people who understand it's an inside job. And by, by committing, fiercely committing to that, that's what makes the planet a better place, the place that we say we want to leave for our children and our children's children. So I just want to say thanks once again to Honda. Uh, Halton Honda, my sponsor for believing in the program. I want to thank my friends and family over at C-Suite Radio Network, where once again, following the live show, you can find the podcast link of the guests that I've interviewed each week. And uh, I want to thank the Contact Talk Radio Network, where it all began for me almost three years ago, come this February. So thank you very much to everybody, uplifting you to fear less and to live more. And Steve, just very quickly, where can people reach out to you? Where can people find you? Where can people seek you out for service? Well, if you'd like to get on my mailing list and know about all the great specials that are coming down the pike, just go to my website, stevetaubman.com. That's steve, T-A-U-B-M-A-N.com. And uh, there is a, a form at the bottom where you can put in your mailing, uh, your email address, and uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted on what's, uh, what's happening down the pike. Fantastic. Well, you have a great day, my friend. All my best to you, you and Woody. Can't wait to see the pictures. <laughs> and good luck with the book. And don't forget, there's a thousand free books for people who uh, get on board with this ASAP because it's being launched in a few days. So go support Steve. It's the gift that you give yourself. It's, you know, coming up for the holidays. Uh, don't deny yourself the privilege and the pleasure. So once again, thanks again to everybody uplifting you to fear less and to live more. Thank you for joining myself and my guest today, Steve. And uh, we'll be back next week doing this again, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Love and gratitude. Take care and all my best. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.